our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. Victor, Foxtrot, authentication, tell the Gulf. It is definitely coming this way. Pieces of it are shooting off. There is no doubt about it. This is weird. Oh, I think, dude. It's rotating. You are listening to Anomaly. everyone back again from the home of anomaly gledders here steve's here too hi steve how are you i'm fine how you doing i'm all right mate i'm all right it's been a little while since we've done an episode together it's uh life's taken uh different directions really hasn't it? life happens yeah but it's all right we're going to try and get a few more under our belt aren't we so uh, we've got oh, yeah. a great interview lined up for tonight so Dr. Ian Rubenstein works in general practice in Enfield, North London. He has a diploma of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and is a fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners. He has an inquiring mind and is following the current UAP news very closely. As if that wasn't enough, he's also an author and a medium. Ian, welcome to the podcast. It's very good to be here, Paul. Nice to be here, Steve. Ian, we're going to be talking tonight about your mediumship practice, but there's an awful lot to, more to you than that. Um, I was wondering if we could start off with who is Ian Rubenstein? Where did you grow up? What sort of things were you interested in? I grew up in Tottenham, North London, and I haven't come far, actually, because the bus I used to take to my school goes straight along the uh, A110, I think it is. So it's the Hartford Road. And it used to terminate at Ponder's End, which is where my practice is. So I tell my patients my career is literally at the end of the line. <laughs> yeah, in fact, in fact I've, led, I've led a linear life because my school was along the same route. And then when I, I trained in uh, medical school in Nottingham, then came back to do my GP training at North Middlesex Hospital, which actually was at the end of my school rugby fields. And then I went from there. And now I'm living in, in, um, living in Enfield and practicing upon the Zen. So I've led a sort of one dimensional life. I call myself Lee Valley man. Because <laughs> yeah, I, <know. laughs> I love, I love the river Lee. It's my sort of spiritual river. And uh, yeah, I do a lot of walking around there and I feel really part of the community. There's a, there's a YouTube channel and I forget his surname, but I'm pretty sure his first name John, is John. John Rogers. John Rogers. John Rogers. Okay. Yeah, so you know exactly absolutely. who I'm talking about. I don't, yeah. I, I've never met him. I mean, I hope to, I, I like to meet him, but I, yeah, I do this sort of the walks that he does. He's the idea you walk and just let your feet carry you. And I absolutely love it. I really, I really do. He walked past me when I was in oh, really? a coffee shop in the little town oh. that I live in. And uh, he was doing a walk up of the River Crouch, I think. So, uh, mm. although strangely enough, by the time I'd got up on my feet and run out the door, he disappeared. So maybe it's the uh, the phantom of John Rogers that I saw. <laughs> so, uh, so you're a North London boy. I'm just trying to think the North Middlesex yeah. Hospital. Is that the one that's just off the 406? Yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. I know it well. I used to drive yeah. past it all the time. So I did. I, I so did four years there and then I train at a local practice in Enfield. And once I uh, qualified as a GP, I did a year in student health at the London School of Economics, which was fascinating, and then got my practice 
joined my practice in 1984. So, and I've been, so I've been at Eagle House Surgery in Ponders Inn for 39 years. Wow, part of the furniture. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah. What was it that made you want to become a doctor in the first place? Um, I was told to go there by Mr. Davies, my <laughs> my uh, my zoology teacher. Um, he, I, I, remember, I remember clearly they. Um, uh, I, according to his room, and he said, Rubenstein, what else are you doing? It was maths, chemistry, physics, and zoology, sir. Right, you're going to medical school. Yes, sir. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was, look, I mean, I, um, I think they, I think they realized that once I, I didn't have friends at school, I had experimental subjects. I think they must have realized. <laughs> I, used, I, used to, I, used, I got into hypnosis when I was 15. But basically, it was a really rough school. We were the last of the grammar lot. And it became a local school that took a lot of rough kids from the sink estate. And the grammar teacher, I mean, they hadn't got a clue. Put it like this. It was it was basically during Vietnam. We didn't have prefects. You got drafted, right? You got drafted into duty because you, you were beaten up. <laughs> so I did four A-levels just so I didn't get, I did less prefect duty because it was brutal, you know? But anyway, so so we used to, we used to actually hold the north door of the science block. And because these kids never want to go to school, but once you got them out of school, they want to get back in just because they were being cussy. So I use reverse psychology. I used to open to say a smile and say, come in, come in. And they look at me and they just hang out. So I was using psychology, but I taught myself hypnosis when I was 15 on account of this book I saw, which showed this sort of rather suave man with a cigarette and this swooning woman. I thought I'll have some of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I ended up hypnotizing the kids. I mean, I was a swatty overweight guy who was in the library because I used to go into the library so I could do my homework and not beat, get beaten up in the school playground. But if I eventually had all these kids queuing outside the library waiting for me to hypnotise them. And the school got wind of it. And um, Mrs Lambert, their deputy head, she, she called me in. She said, Ian, I, I, come to, I, I think, yeah, I was about 16. So she said, Ian, um, I do believe in hypnosis. I've got a degree in psychology, but if you but you can't do it at school, just sign this form. And basically she was covering her ass. I mean, we're all doing it now. Just don't do it at pretty, school. <laughs> yeah, but no, I think I think I think she's great to get me to sign a form because you know, she obviously was forward thinking. But they but she said I mean, she must I think they they realized that I was probably medical school material. I mean, I didn't think, but there we go. It's they, definitely they, another string something. to your bow, though, isn't it? Because, you know, we were chatting off air yesterday and talking about other things that we have in common, and we're both interested in the field of psychodynamics. Yeah, yeah. And you studied for a while at the Tavistock. Yeah, yeah. But that must have been something. Well, yeah, I mean, when I trained, general practice was very holistic orientated. I mean, it's not like that now. It's all changed. Mm. But this was the um, this was the eighties. Uh, my training practice, which was um, uh, was very holistic. So, the, my mentor, a guy called Mike Carmi, was was professor of primary care. He was doing hypnosis when I joined. I was actually doing hypnosis um, as a hospital doctor because I, we had a woman we couldn't get the catheter out after she had a hysterectomy, and um, she was actually blocking the bed. And my my boss, uh, Miss Witt, she said. Um, we can't get rid of this woman. I said, well, do you want to try some hypnosis? She's, she said, yeah, yeah, do please. So I hypnotized and, and we took the catheter out. It was no problem. So she started sending me patients. Um, so I saw some private patients as a trainee. Um, so there, there was, um, I think I was the only trainee with a private practice. And the reason why I was doing that was because Margaret Thatcher was in power and I was frightened that she was going to abolish the NHS. 
And I thought, well, you know, because it, it might have all gone pear-shaped. You're talking Steve's language there as well, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I thought, well, okay, it's not my, I mean, that's not my politics, but I thought, well, you know, that maybe that's the writing on the wall. Um, so Mike was doing hypnosis. I was doing hypnosis. And Bill Moore, my, my trainer, who I was attached to, he, he just was studying acupuncture. So he taught me acupuncture. So I've done, I've, I've used hypnosis. I don't use hypnosis now because it takes up a lot of time, but mm. I did acupuncture a long time. So I do acupuncture. I've always been interested. I've always been interested in the broader view. Um, and, and when I trained as a GP, you were, you were trained to, to, to look at the whole patient. I mean, you still are, but unfortunately mm. the way medicine's going, it's becoming very protocol driven and very rote. Yeah. And I'm sure it's like that with every single profession. I'm sure the police have got that. I'm sure the fire service got everybody and teachers have got it. You, you have to stick to the script basically. Yeah, absolutely. I don't like, I don't like sticking to scripts. I'm too old for that. So the thing my, is, my we, partners have put up with me. If you're, I don't want to blow smoke, but if you're clever enough to think outside the box and think laterally, then having a script is actually quite um, suppressing. It, it sort of oh, well, it yeah. constrains yeah. you. And, um, yeah. and you know, we see it when we phone up um, and you get through, put through to a call centre and everything's coming off a script and it's just the most frustrating experience. I mean, I mean, I try and get someone into hospital, right? And you get put, so I'm a doctor. I know what the, what the patient, I'm trying to get the patient seen who's been accepted by hospital. And the poor person at the other end has to go through the script. Is the patient breathing? Yeah, patient's breathing. How, they just go through it and, and I just, and, I mean, you just have to, but it just wastes time, absolute waste of time. There's no common sense in the system anymore. Is, has this come about as a result of people being litigious, or is it something else? Cost cutting. If you can get yeah. if you can get someone who's not trained to do it by according to an algorithm, that's what you do. And eventually they'll get rid of doctors because the algorithm will do it. He'll come into my room. He'll come into my room. There'll just be a big button that says "Press here." <laughs> press for the AI <laughs> doctor. Press for the AI doctor. Yeah, well, actually, my son's actually uh, an AI researcher. Oh. He's actually work, works for Google. Yeah, he, I, I've had a ringside seat of that. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I love all that stuff. I look, look, what's not to like? You know, we've got AI, robots, even aliens. I mean, when I was a kid, this, this is the one. I, I knew it was going to be like this in the future. I didn't. The one thing I just didn't think I'd be old in the future, but there we go. <laughs> Are you depressed at the lack of flying cars? Because I am. Yeah, definitely. I want my flying car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly what I said. Where's my flying they car? They have them in Lincolnshire, Steve tells me. I like Lincolnshire. I mean, I trained in Nottingham. Used to go to Lincoln quite a lot. We we trained at Queen's or at City? Um, well, when I was there, Queen's didn't exist. Oh, right. Okay. So I was so I was onto the campus and I did much. It was a city general yeah. and the general, general yeah. hospital. I never went worked at Queen's. I saw it being built. Yeah. But they've, they've, now they pulled down all the walls. I did my first house job. Um, a surgeon, a surgery at the um, at the general hospital, and now the ward I was on is now I think the Standard Life Insurance. Last time I looked, I, I had a lot to do with Nottingham because my my wife, who I met at medical school, she's a doctor as well. She is, although she's Indian, she 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 grew up in in um, in Nottingham. Her dad was one of the first Indian GPs oh, wow. in the country, and he had a practice in Mapley in Nottingham. Yeah, and they lived in Burton. Just I used to go there quite a lot, but. Um, her mum's now 95 and living near us now, so we don't go to Nottingham now, but had a long association with the Midlands. And my wife is very practical. She was a, she actually, she trains as a GP, but she became a family planning training doctor. So she used to teach other doctors 
about family planning, how to fit girls and things. But she's been retired for a few years now. Okay. I'm just, I'm just carrying on. What I'd like to do is thinking about, as we're going to talk about mediumship with yourself today, mm-hmm. and as with all the things, there is a first time. So oh, yeah. when were you first exposed oh. to this? To mediumship? Yeah. Well, the first time I was exposed to mediumship was at the age of 19. This story, my wife, she used to roll her eyes because every time every time I told it, she said, I've heard this so many times before. So I was 19. And this is ama- this, this story is amazing. Um, I mean, I always say if the CIA wiped my mind, but they allowed me to have one memory, I say, give me this one, because this this is gobsmackingly amazing. So um, first year at medical school, and it was um, summer 1974. So it was the summer holiday, the one long vacation we got. And my mate Nick was doing physics at Leicester. So we all came home um, and we were at Nick's house in uh, in North London. He brought his girlfriend from Oswestry. Um, Felicity had come down and she was staying with him. And my sister was around. So the four of us were in, in his room. We were just having a chat one evening, about 10, 11 o'clock. And um, Felicity had long brown hair. She's quite a nice looking girl, dark complexion. And um, the background to it, though, is, is that she had a crush on me and my sister had a crush on, on me. So it was very adolescent. But there was a lot of tension, okay, a lot of adolescent tension. But I was playing up for it because I just started going out with my wife. So I was being a bit of the Jack the Lad. And I was enjoying the attention. But we we're having this, 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 this chat. And then all of a sudden, as I looked at her, there was this blonde-haired Snow Queen with sort of shoulder-length blonde hair, a fringe, um, high cheekbones, and very, very thick white lips, like coated with frosted lipstick. But the lips hadn't formed properly. They looked strangely distorted. And this being looked at me, and I, now it, there wasn't such a term as a download in 1974, but actually, you know when they, you know when you hear these people, they say that they, I had a download from whatever. Yeah, it, I had a download. I mean, it was in my mind. It was dumped, it, telepathically, instantly. Stop. What you're doing is wrong. I knew, knew what it meant. You know, keep back, keep back. What you're doing is wrong. And then and it was stern, but not unkind. Then it was mark this. No, there's more to life than meets the eye. And one day you will understand. And that was like in like two seconds. And I just, uh, and I think if no one else has seen it, I'd have just thought, what the hell was that? And just gone on. But at this, that moment, my sister went absolutely hysterical and started, and still started screaming at the top of her voice. My God, can you see those lips? Because she saw the profile and the lips were quite, quite distorted. And I looked at my sister and said, well, you've seen it too. And then looked back at, for this thing, she was completely normal. So, so now the reason why I'm telling you this is because that's actually called transfiguration. Right. That, that's well recognized. Um, and I didn't know. I mean, I knew nothing about this in those days. Anyway, we, we ran, we ran around screaming like chickens with our heads cut off, jumped into my, my dad's car, went around to my mum and dad's house. It was now two o'clock in the morning. So you can imagine what they said. Take Nick and Felicity home and come to the city kids. So the next day I phoned all my friends and my, my mate Steve in Tottenham, he said, I don't know what it was, Ian, but my my neighbour, Keith Hudson, is a medium. Why don't you come around and see what he says? So he went around to Steve's house and there's this sort of tall, gangly guy, age 27. So he looked very old, you know, when you're 19, someone who's 27 looks old. He was prematurely going bald, a bit strange. And he said, oh, what you saw was her spirit guide. 
it was protecting her, presumably from from me feeding on her her, her energy. And I thought, wow, I don't know, I don't, I don't believe in spirit guides. It must have been a hallucination. But then, the problem was, if it was a hallucination, how come my sister saw it? So I was at first year at medical school. I think there was still landing people on the moon. Um, so I was really into science, and that really, really rocked my worldview. So I have all. What do you do with that? I mean, you know, it didn't fit fit, fit into my world. I'd, I'd have been scared silly. No, I wasn't scared. No, and it wasn't scary. My sister was really scared. I wasn't. I didn't get any. I mean, I thought it was amazing because it was. It was like you're watching a play and you think it's real, and then someone moves the scene at the back, and you get a glimpse of the back cloth. And you think, oh my god, that's what's really going on. But I mean, what do you do with it? I, I mean, I couldn't peg it into any worldview. So I just kept it to one side. And I told people the stories over the years at parties, or if patients ask me, you know, do you think there's anything when you die? Don't I say, I don't know, but I'll tell you this story. Um, and I did tell lots of people, but actually that's quite important because Keith Hudson later came back into my life. And it was obviously a foreshadow of what was to come. Now, when, when Keith met me at Steve's house, he looked at him and said, You've got not a lot, lot of knowledge around you, Ian. You don't know, you know, but you will one day. And I thought, well, he would say that. It's an easy one because he knows I'm a medical student. I didn't think anything of it. But I'll talk about that later because I came across him later. And looking back, it was obviously something that had to happen. But that's how I got into it. Me- I didn't know that was mediumship. I mean, I, 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 he said that was her spirit guide. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was. When you um, saw when you saw this yeah. face, this figure, yeah. was yeah. it fully three D? Was it? Um, well, it, it it was too quick. To, it was just like there was someone else there in her place, wow. um, but with strange lips. And then it, it was instant. But the interesting thing is, when I started studying mediumship many years later, I came across Keith again, and um, he he used to collect antiquarian spiritualist books. When you read the old Victorian books, they document it all. They mention that often when spirit figures form, they form, the ectoplasm flows upwards. So the top of the figure forms first and the bottom's less formed. And actually, that's what I saw. The top of the face was okay, but the bottom was distorted, like it hadn't formed properly. But it wasn't like flowing ectoplasm. It was like instant, like mm. a shift, and then it was gone. Yeah. So I don't know how it went, because I looked at my sister and then looked back at Felicity and she was fine. So it's, I don't know. But that, I mean, I've, I've I've been to transfiguration demonstrations since then and never been convinced, but this was absolutely in your face, gobsmackingly convincing. Um, so that was, I'd love to see that again. I really would. That is absolutely but amazing. I haven't had anything like that, which I would say objectively seeing with your eyes. Um, so that, that was the first thing I got into. Actually, probably the very first thing was I had a near-death experience at the age of nine. Okay. And that, that might have something to do with it. I didn't put that in my book because I didn't didn't twig it, but it's only subsequently reading because I'm not an ex- I wasn't, a, I mean, I know quite a bit now, but I wasn't an expert before. Um, I wouldn't call myself an expert. I've read, read quite a bit. Um, so when I was nine, I had my tonsils out in the North Middlesex Hospital, as strange to say. And um, I, it was complicated. And I had to, I was bleeding a lot from where they took the tonsils out and I had to go down and have the, operation again i'd lost quite a lot of blood so i wasn't going to die but i was quite ill and under the anesthetic i had what i thought was a dream because mm-hmm. i was nine so we t- i was born in 55 so about 1964 term near-death experience tunnels and lights no one had documented it but i was in this 
dark tunnel. And it was like a black garden polytunnel, but big, one you could walk in. And I, and I was there, and um, out of my sense of my abdomen was a very thick stalk, like, like molten glass. And that was being pulled out of my abdomen and rotating down this tunnel. Oh, my God. The tunnel was curved to the left. Yeah, very weird. And on the end of that, like in the distance, was a little bright spark. Now I was nine, and I knew that I really was that little bright spark, that little star in the end of this stalk. Right. Then he went round the corner, and then I then I went under the anaesthetic, or I just lost consciousness. Right, okay, so that could have been the dream. But let me tell you what happened. So I was I was um, a senior house officer in gynaecology 17 years later at the North Middlesex Hospital. And um, I was on call for gynaecology. And it, in those days, um, what you used to do, pe- GPs would refer you out of hours. Say were women who'd had babies, but they were still bleeding. And you would have to arrange an emergency DNC. So you'd have to basically scrape the wound. And you do that out of hours. So I had to phone the anaesthetist, uh, book the theatre, and then go down and do the operation. It's quite a simple procedure. Um, one night, um, I'm doing it, and I phone the operating department. They say, oh, you can't use this operating theatre. Um, it's being refurbished. Um, Someone will meet you and show you where the temporary operating theatre is. So someone met me and she led me through. And I, and I walked into this operating theatre and I just felt like I'd been hit by a sledgehammer. I said, I've been here before. She said, well, you can't have been. I said, but I know I've been here before. She said, well, you can't have been. It's the old paediatric ENT theatre. Hasn't been used for 10 years. And that's where I would have had my tonsils out. Uh-huh. The thing is, when you're anaesthetised, you're in a side ward. So you don't see the operating theatre. Also, all operating theatres look pretty similar. Mm. And I wasn't expecting that, but I just knew I'd been there. So there's obviously something psychic there, I think. I mean, I like, I like, to, I like to imagine. So I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm actually trying to go through my life and work out this pattern. So I think it, it, it does seem there. very much like there's a thread that runs all the yeah, way through. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I had a near-death experience when I was, uh, I think it was 11 or 12 after mm. um, pretty much drowning in the school swimming pool. And, uh, you know, it didn't take very long and I, I was back before I knew it. Mm. But, mm. you know, that that whole tunnel of light mm. um, and I knew I wasn't supposed to go that way. So I, I came back. But um, I, I think I, I was very struck by that as an incredibly powerful experience to go through. And and again, it, it's something that bothered me. I, I didn't find it a nice experience. But um, you know, different for all people. I, I guess the the question I'd put to you as a doctor: mm. could mm. there be some sort of uh, chemical formulation for this from being put under anaesthetic that might cause this? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I used I thought it was that. I always used to tell the story, but I thought it was just that. Mm. It was. It wasn't. And, but it wasn't until I was trying to work out, well, why me? Why? Why have I had these weird stuff happen to me in my late forties? And then I was reading that people who had near death experiences often end up having paranormal experience afterwards. It's not uncommon. You come back with certain gifts. Um, so yeah, something, another, another thing happened to me when I was, when I was 16. So, um, I, I, I was told the name of my wife before I met her. Wow. So yeah, I mean, I was walking down the stairs at home. And my, my friend Steve, the one who, who knew Keith Hudson, he was mad about the only Indian girl in, in our school. 
And I didn't think she was that good looking. She looked like the Mona Lisa with glasses. She's a nice girl, but I mean, not my type. I was mad about this girl called Laurie, blonde and cute. And I, I wanted to marry her. Anyway, um, so I was 16 and in puppy love. And, and I was walking down the stairs and I used to jump down the stairs. So I, I knew my left foot was on the 11th step. My right foot was coming down the 10th step. I can re- remember it. And I remember th- idly thinking, what on earth does Steve see in this girl? And, um, you know, who are these Indians anyway? Because I didn't know any Indians. And I felt someone behind me, and it was like um, they put a cloak and then a hood over my head. And I knew that I was going to marry an Indian girl with a name like Pam. I mean, and it was such a strong feeling. I remember stopping, thinking, no, I don't. I don't want to marry Laura. But anyway, um, so, I mean, I, I, that, that stuck in mind. Anyway, when I went to medical school um, and I met my wife, I mean, she doesn't look particularly Indian. And we started going out together. And her name's Poonam, P-U-N-A-M. I didn't, I thought she was Turkish. Okay. She was from India. And, um, and so I did marry an Indian girl with a name like Pam. You take the U and the N out, you've got Pam. Yeah. So, so I mean, the, the reason I'm telling this is because I think this, for me, as an observer of my own life, it makes me think that I probably don't really know who I really am, who I truly am. I don't think we all do. And I don't think, and I think there's something really weird about time. And there's something also weird about our life patterns. So I suspect we come here with an agenda, a mission, um, and we have a function to fulfill. I'm not saying I believe it, um, but that's a hypothesis I use. I mean, I try not to do belief. Having said that, I really do believe in UFOs. I have to say that. I'm absolutely certain. <laughs> but, but when it comes to this mediumship and stuff, which really was not in my background, um, I'm still baffled how I got into it. I, I, so I, I am a spiritualist with a small S, in other okay. words, someone who, who deals with spirits, but with a big S, you know, like a true believer, spiritualist is a religion. I hang out with big S spiritualists and I'm very sympathetic towards them. And it, I use that framework to when, to when I'm doing what I'm doing, but I will hang fire. I mean, I, do I believe I'm, I said, I say, I would say my heart believes my, my head still got doubts because I can always psychologize ways that this might not be real. Yeah, understood. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it, I mean, it does. That's the sceptical science bit. In, in, yeah. Paul and I were, were talking about quite a famous um, medium, in, in internationally famous one. And I saw this person live, and I know this person's quite litigious, so we're going to be quite careful what we say. Yeah. It, might, it might give you clues who we're talking about. Mm. Um, it was a very entertaining evening, mm. but what I saw from what this person was doing was she was a very good reader of people oh yeah that there was there was no i'm not saying that what was going on was cold reading or anything like that but <laughs> it was a very very entertaining evening and i think mm-hmm. that is done for entertainment purposes yeah yeah no, no, and, I mean, and and that's maybe the difficulty when you have somebody who does have a gift yeah and these people are going on tv they they're yeah. doing sellout tours and everything and what they're doing is probably more psychological yeah, and mentally, sociology, yeah. sociology yeah. and that sort of thing going on than yeah, actual yeah. spiritualism. Well, you, you've got to understand, um, first of all, yeah, um, the, 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 the purest um, medium was a guy called Albert Best in Scottish Glaswegian medium. I think he was the adopted, I think Georgie Best, I think he adopted Georgie Best or... The footballer. Oh. Anyway, they were linked to George Beth. And he was, I think he was an Irish medium who lived in Glasgow. And he would 
have packed, he'd, he'd have packed audiences, but if he didn't have the power, if he didn't feel he could do it that day, he'd say, I'm very sorry, I haven't got the power this evening, you'll have to go home. And um, remember, what you're doing as a medium is you, you are picking up on the whole person. So you will definitely be doing cold reading. Mm. There's no doubt about that. You can't, you can't help it. And you'll think, and is that grandfather? But not old. That, that, that's, that's inevitable. You do that. Um, and that's why, funnily enough, when the pandemic came on and was the groups where I, my development circle, where we, we were doing, we moved over to zoom where you get less cues because mm. sometimes you didn't even see what you were doing. Actually, the mediumship was better because, you know, this second guessing and the cold reading bit often confounds a pure reading. So, you know, sometimes the most ridiculous, you think, no, that can't be right. I'm not going to give that. But if you were to give it, the person would say, yeah, that's absolutely right. But of course you think, well, that doesn't fit with their face. doesn't fit with their background. I'm not going to give that. So it's, but it's very hard to, to loosen all that. Mm. And that's what you've got to learn. And that, that's what mediums call trusting your spirit guides. Um, and so, yeah, so spiritists believe that they don't work on their own, but they're working with a group of other spirits from the other side. And, and, and they, you can imagine like you have to raise your vibrations and the communicating spirit has to lower its vibrations mm. and the spirit guides are sort of in between trying to pull their communicator down to your level and trying to bring you up to their level. I'm very um, interested in the mechanics and the mechanisms that uh, are at work yeah. with this. Um, yeah, I was just yeah. wondering, before we go there, could I possibly yeah. take you back to the day that you were in your surgery and uh, oh, yeah. you had a, a patient in the surgery who uh, had something of a, a revelation for you? Keith Bishop. Every doctor should have a patient like Keith Bishop. <laughs> when Keith comes into your life, you know you're going to go on a journey. Sometimes literally. I'll tell you a story about him. Keith is lovely. He's now my friend. Actually, I need to contact him. He completely changed my life. Absolutely. If it hadn't been for Keith, none of this would happen. And he does that for other people. He's So Keith is actually, now he's um, a PR guy, and he um, he he runs a firm called Keith Bishop's Associates. And he work, he does work for Mike Ashley um, and, you know, Newcastle FC. He negotiates on his behalf. Um, and he knows lots of people. He's been around. Um he would be very entertaining. He'd come and see me and he'd always tell me some, some showbiz gossip and it was great. Anyway, so Charlie's with Keith, like a lot of people in that field, he could be a bit unreliable. He's a bit of a lover. He's lovely. Um, bit of a schmoozer, you know, he'll say, Oh, lovely, lovely. And nice to see you top doc. Lovely. You know, all that sort of stuff. But he, uh, so I was in my surgery. He was the last patient in the morning and I, I wasn't really going to hang around because I thought he, he might not turn up because he was a bit late. I was just about to go. And then I felt some, something pushed me back down to my chair. <laughs> I tried to get up again. And I felt the urge to sit down again. And then the phone rang. And it was his um, PA saying that he was at the local station. And he's sorry, he's a bit late. Could he? Uh, could I wait? So I said, yeah, I'll wait, but I'm not going to wait all day. He came about five minutes later and he'd been running. And he was very red faced and sweating and I had to take his blood pressure. So, oh God. so I thought, well, this isn't going to be quick, is it? So I thought calm down and um, let him, uh, let him speak. So he told me a, a bit of the gossip and then he looked at me and he said, um, I'm terribly sorry, doc, but I've got this man here. 
He's the grandfather you never met and he wants to speak to you. Now, I've been going through a really bad time with my family at that at that stage. Um, in fact, my wife and I have been ostracized from the family um, because um, I basically decided stop being a good Jewish boy who was good to his mum and dad <laughs> and try being my, my own my own person. And that didn't go down very well. And I realised that all my cousins had the same problem. So I researched the family and I realised that my mother's grandfather, um, who'd had a bakery shop in Cable Street in the East, East End, he had two bakery, bakery shops, he was doing very successful, but he was a gambler. And at the end of the week, he'd put his hand in the till and you know, blow it all on the horses. And I realized that, that that was a problem that, that boys couldn't be trusted, had to be controlled. And I, I interviewed all my cousins and I, th I came to that conclusion, interviewed my uncles and aunts about this. And yeah, I came to that, that conclusion. I think they all agree with me now. That was a problem in our family. And I realized it was down to my maternal grandfather, one I never met. So I was, I'd been thinking about him a lot. So when Keith said, I've got this man here, he's the grandfather you never met. I thought, bloody hell, how did he know that? So I sort of thought, Okay, come on. So you sort of, he went a bit blank. He didn't go into a trance. It's like he was listening to someone over his shoulder. And he shifted gear and just started telling me everything that was going on in my life. Everything that he couldn't possibly know. And then after about 20 minutes, he said, was that all right, Doc? Did, didn't say anything to upset you. I said, no, Keith, it was amazing. After I, after I picked my jaw off the floor, I said, how do you know that? He said, oh, I've been listening to spirit all my life. I said, what spirit? What do you mean listening to spirit? I'd never heard the term before. I said, what, what you listen to you listen to spirits he said yeah i said why didn't you how, how can you never tell me that before because i'd known him for 19 years at that time he said well it's not the sort of thing you tell your doctor because you think you're mad and i was already thinking i'd have to section him <laughs> um and you know under the psychiatric act. but anyway anyway he, he then looked at me and said my spirit guide william i said who's william he said oh he's my boss at the bbc when he died, he became my spirit guide. And I'm thinking, this is bizarre. Wow. <laughs> he said, he um, he's saying that you should be doing this. I said, what? Listen to spirit. I said, what? He said, yeah. Then he left. Um, And then from that point on, my wife and I started experiencing the most amazing coincidences. I mean, really, it was like, uh, I mean, too many to tell. Sure. I mean, it was like I, it was like I was being led on a journey, I, I, and I had to pick up the the clues. I've got this image of you in sitting in your office in the surgery, yeah. and the guy just left, and you just sort of sitting back in your chair, throwing your hands up in the air, and going, "What?" <laughs> well, what actually happened was my receptionist Carol said, "Ian, are you, she buzzed me. Through, are you all right, Ian? You spent about half an hour with him." I said, "Yeah." I said. He just gave me a spirit, spirit, spiritualism reading, a medium reading. And she said, oh, do you watch Most Haunted? It's really good, isn't it? I said, no, I, I never heard of it. So, you know, um, what, what I, I told all the, so my receptionist, I mean, I, I told them what happened. And then they were waiting, you know, oh, what's happened next thing? Because I was going through with, I mean, I went to a party. And then the first person I met there, she said she grew up in a haunted house. And then, I mean, just weird stuff. I, 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 it was like every time, every time I was trying to go like a rat in a maze being <laughs> moved down the path. Yeah. And, and I said, eventually it became so crazy. It was driving me nuts. And my wife said, this is bonkers. Um, so she worked in a local clinic with one of my patients who's a nurse. And this nurse's husband, Dave, was one of my patients. And Dave was a very sensible guy. He was a, a he, he, he's one of these long, long haired guy, but he was a science teacher 
older than me and he would sort of do the drumming at Stonehenge and did, did his time in sweat lodges, you know, and came in with, you know, feathers on him and stuff. But he was a lovely guy, very solid sort of guy. And I told him what was going on. He said, oh, Ian, you've got to join the circle. So what's that? He said, well, they're spiritualist churches and um, that's where you develop. Because if you don't, it'll drive you nuts. So I said, well, look, I said, my wife's Hindu and I'm a non-practicing Jew. We don't go to places called churches. He said, well, spirit want, want you to do, go. They'll find a way. And bugger me. <laughs> that evening, yeah. I go home and Puna's reading the local paper and she's at the classified ad section. She said, here, is that Keith Hudson, the guy with, with um, Felicity's face? who I've heard about, but never met for 27 years. You're going on about him. I said, yeah, what about him? She said, he's giving um, a demonstration of clairvoyance at the local spiritualist church, the Beacon of Light in Enfield. Do you want to come? I said, no. <laughs> she said, come on, go. I said, no, I'm not going. She said, no, we'll go. So I said, all right, I will go. So we went there. And I, I remember I sneaked into the back. I didn't want to be seen. I thought it was bonkers. I thought, I, yeah, these people are crazy. And so I sat at the back and Keith, actually looked pretty much he hadn't changed because he lost his hair early i mean i used to have dark curly hair and now i'm you know you can see i've lost all my hair and i've gone gray i look very different so i sat at the back trying not to be noticed and keith being keith he was really good he went through every single person in the um, congregation gave the message when he came to me he said sir you have a lot of knowledge around you that's what he said to me when he first met me he didn't know it was me he said you have a lot of knowledge around you sir you don't know you know it, but you will very soon and they're telling me you're going to be writing a book about it. And I thought, well, I bet they says that to everybody, but actually he doesn't. So he gave me the same message apart from writing a book that he did when I was 19. And he didn't know who I was because at the end of the, of the service, the president of the church said, would anyone give, uh, Mr. Hudson hasn't got a car. Would anyone give me a lift home? So I, being my excitable self, <laughs> let, let, I said, Yes, I'll give him a, a lift home. Only if you come back to my house for a cup of tea first. He'd let back because you do get some more people at these sure. shows. When I, when, I, when I saw that I was a bit too forward, I said, Keith, it's me, Ian Rubenstein. He said, what, the doctor? I said, yeah. He said, I was just talking to Ralph about you, another old school friend, right. the other day. So he came back to my house for a cup of tea and we caught up over 27 years. He said, look, Ian, you don't have to be a spiritualist. I run the largest uh, development circle in North London. It's in Walthamstow. I don't call myself a spiritualist. He said, spiritualists are very narrow-minded. I call myself a seeker after truth. He said, um, he said, you can join my circle. You don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to be a spiritualist. Just come and see what happens. So I did. So I joined his development circle at Vestry Road Spiritualist Church, which was really humming in those days. Um, it's about, I think it was the 4th of February, 2004. We're getting on for 20 years now. Wow. And that's, uh, that's how I started training as a medium. So the development circle is a way of yeah. bringing on your own skills. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's spiritualist movement obviously needs to to train mediums because that the I mean that spiritualist services are prayers and everything, but the meat of the matter is is actually proof proof of life after death. That's what they like to give evidence. Okay. So it it depends on having people who can demonstrate this. Um, so it's, it's an evidence-based religion, you might say, which I rather like, mm. um, because, you know, you're either right or you're wrong, or oh, you're a bit iffy, you know, it's, but, you know, at least there's evidence there. It's not taken on faith. You know, you know, you've got to give out. And I learned two things. I, th I thought for, so the first time I sat there it was hilarious because there's me, it's all over-educated amongst people I grew up with, 
you know, work, sort of the earth working class people from Walthamstow, Tottenham. I mean, I, you know, I was one of them, but I, you know, I've moved on, you know, and I was also, you know, uh, you know, I've been to medical school and a lot of them hadn't been to higher education. Um, and I didn't know what to expect. And the guy next to me, um, Joe, he looked like Gollum. I mean, he had shaved head, skinny, and he was covered in tattoos. He was a really nice guy. Yeah. I got friendly with him. But he, I remember he sat next to me and he said, loosen up, Doc, we're not going to eat you. And I thought, <laughs> bloody well, are, aren't you? <laughs> but but the, the interesting thing was, so at the time, um, so we'd sit in a circle, and the idea was is you would try and give messages to the other members of the circle. Okay. And the way you do that is by just letting your mind go blank and going with the first thing that comes into your mind. So you're, that's working at what you might call the psychic level. Now, what Keith said was, but we did it in an interesting way. Rather than give a message to an individual, we'd give it to a number. So let's say there's 26 people in the circle. Mm. So there's sometimes a big circle. Keith would, in his head, point to, say, a person, let's call her Jenny, make her number one and then go left or right. Mm. So, so, you know, clockwise or anti-clockwise. So everybody had a number. He didn't know that he knew she was number one. He was going left, uh, he was going anti-clockwise or clockwise. So everyone had a number. And what he said was, when you give a message, I thought this is bonkers, absolutely bonkers. He said, you'll give a, a message to the number and your spirit guide will sort it out with, with their spirit guide to get the, the message to the right person. So I thought, okay, all right. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so this is a technique developed by a really good medium who's still around called Michael Redwin, actually. Okay. So basically what you've got is a, as in, in medical terms or scientific terms, it's a single blind trial because he actually, it's more like a double blind because he would know where you start, but he wouldn't really know the numbers. He just, at the end, he'd work it out. He'd have to crack the code. So even he wouldn't know that she was number three and four. He'd have to work it out. So what would happen is you call out, you call out a number. So it was a bit like, um, it was a bit like um, the old stock exchange because everybody was calling out, Oi, Keith, yeah, message yeah. for number four. And he'd write it down with a, it was, we're in the dark. Yeah, he'd have a ha Harry Potter illuminated pen, very apt <laughs> in the dark. I, I was, it was delicious. It was lovely. I mean, I was having the time of my life because I'd gone from standard medical practice, you know, it was, I mean, being a doctor was a serious thing. All the yeah. time I was having the time of my life. I mean, I'd, I'd been released from the confines of my family and I felt everything just opening out opening up you know i finally let go you know, my, my my wife was really supportive as well which was very very good anyway and my reception was supportive my I was, I was telling my patients what i was going through and they they loved it as well it was it was it was very interesting uh, that is amazing because you know I, I i'm intrigued by so much of this um and as i said mechanism of how it works and you know you've started to touch on it there with the numbering system and the decoding but mm. also i mean you're in a professional occupation oh, yeah. and i'm i'm intrigued so i mean you know i used to be a policeman and now mm. you know people are very quick to criticize the police and i i can only yeah. imagine that with doctors it can't be too dissimilar ah, oh, ah okay that's what I, that's what i thought so um so, well, we'll get back to the me mechanics in, in a minute, but as I developed, um, uh, what I found was that my patients were much more accepting of this than I realized. And I realized one, one insight I gained from this, even, even if mediumship is a load of rubbish, I gained an enormous in insight, which was my patients don't think like I think. Patients don't think like doctors. Most ordinary people 
Um, I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm not being disrespectful to my patients. I come, my area is a very mixed area. It's sort of working class, lower middle class, a lot of people from all over the world. It's very diverse. Yeah. Very diverse. And it's Eastern Enfield. And I, when I was speaking to them about explaining things, I thought they knew perfectly what I was going on about. I really, they don't, they don't think like me. I mean, not at all. It was just, I threw that out the window. What they want is a story. They want, I realized then that, that the diagnostic view of medicine that we do is not, people don't, it's important for the doctor, but what people want is a narrative that makes sense to them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's really important. That's really, and it doesn't even have to be logical. That could sometimes be downright illogical as I, as I realized, but that's just as valid. So they were much more acceptance of these weird experiences I was having. They just took it on the chin. A lot of them said, well, yeah, obviously you're, you're, you're in contact with dead people. I say, how do you know that? I said, well, you're giving these messages. I said, yeah, but it could be that. It could be, no, don't just loosen up. You know, it's just, you know, you're in contact with spirit. Anyway, just a different way of thinking. Um, and that, that was really good. And I like to think that I, I started off um, being like one of these researchers. I mean, I kidded myself. I thought the way, the, the way I, I, I kidded myself was, Oh, these are different people. These are funny people. I'm just studying them, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not really one of them, but, but I'm like one of these not ethnographers who actually, in the end, I, I went native and I realized that actually it's uh, that, that worldview is very valid. It might not be right in terms strict scientific way, but then what's right anyway. I mean, it, it loosened all my preconceptions basically. Mm. So I, and I had enormous problems with this. I mean, really, because I was thinking, what am I doing? I'm interacting with voices in my head because you have to learn how to speak to your spirit guides. Um, but I remember when I did psychiatry, because I did six months of psychiatry as a, as a trainee, yeah. I remember speaking to my senior registrar at the time. He, he was a missionary. He was a Christian guy. He'd done missionary work in Africa. So I was seeing these severely psychotic patients who saw things and we were injecting them and everything. And I remember saying to him, I said, Mike, Michael, what, what, um, I had this experience where I saw this face. I mean, you know, th this, you know, when I was 19 and then why aren't you injecting me? You know, how come these patients might be in touch with spirit? I mean, how do we know? He said, look, and it's like this. He said, when you did, when you saw what you saw, you found it valuable and ins insightful, didn't you? I said, yeah, it was amazing. So, well, these people are, um, are diseased by what they're seeing. In other words, they have a disease and that made sense actually. So uh, that, that enabled me to sort of, so, you know, think, well, okay. So not everybody who has hallucinations, you know, in the medical term is actually diseased. And actually it's now known that about 10% of people hear voices or have hallucinations. And, you know, I think it was a famous mathematician who did. Um, and, um, you could, you could use it to your advantage. So, um, yeah, so it, it really, it really loosened my preconceptions. I have to it's say. It's really interesting. And it's something else I was thinking about there. You're treating as a doctor people from all over the world who have come yeah, to, come to yeah. the UK. When, when and if mediumship comes up as a subject with people from different cultures, do you, do you find that? literally everybody is quite accepting or are there people who are quite concerned about it or well you, you i mean my jehovah's witness patients don't like it right um i mean i mean i tell them but they we agree to differ i mean I, you know um, they're, they're not nasty about it some people don't want to know mm. 
Um, and you won't, I mean, I don't foist it on people, but I mean, sometimes I do get things come through. Yeah. Well, I'm, which, well, which I'm, is another one of my questions, really. Do you, hmm. and I've got a whole bunch here, which I need to hmm. come back to, but when you have a, a spirit come through to you and, and, and I probably mm. need some clarification on what spirit mm. actually is as well. But mm. when, when somebody comes through to you, is it almost always a relative or loved one of the person that you're talking to, or can it be anybody that comes through? Well, it, it can be anybody, but normally it would be someone, I mean, because if it's anybody, what you call a drop in. Okay. Uh, unless they're giving information, how would you know? I mean, you're looking for evidence. Yeah. So, so if, if so, I've got this. Joe Bloggs is here. Do you know Joe Bloggs? No. What he's telling you that? I, sorry, I don't know. Is I mean that often happens. You know, if when you're in circle, I've got this person here, and no one can take it. If someone can't take it, it's very deflating. You're only as good as the medium as your last message. Believe me, well, it's I, very, very deflating. I, I just wonder what that says about spirit as to whether some spirits are imposing or perhaps playful or mischievous or maybe you're just making it up i mean you know yeah. because but basically it's all done through the filter of your mind so it's not it's not like it you're a passive receiver you and what you have to learn when you're doing mediumship is i mean so you have to have a model so i've accepted the spiritualist model as a working frame okay yeah now I'm, it may be wrong it may be that i that completely wrong it may be there is something paranormal but it's not spirits Mm. But you know, I don't know. Maybe they catch it records. I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, but I, but the spirit, the spiritualist framework is what's been given to me. I seem to be sent into it. I mean, I'd be more like to be gone into UFO research, to be honest, with my interest. But no, I was drawn towards that. Um, and and it's a useful, it's a useful framework. I mean, there's lots of things in medicine where you, uh, if, we, if we look at physics, for instance, like quantum physics, no one knows how it works, but it, mathematically it works. That's a useful framework. I'm not saying I do quantum physics, but it's that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm. It's a useful intellectual framework to work in. So, yeah. So, but then it's me. So whatever's happening, let's say there is a communicating spirit. It's coming through your unconscious mind. So what you're doing is you're trying to work with your unconscious mind. You have a, you had to work out how your unconscious mind works. So when you deal with a guide, now that might be an avatar of your unconscious mind that you can deal mm. with. But you get to know how your guides present information to. Now, it may be what you're doing is you're creating an avatar, which you can work with, like an icon on your desktop. Yeah. You know, it's not real, but it's useful. And you're working with it. So, for instance, I think in terms of, I'm not very good with maths, but I'm pretty good with words and puns. So when I get messages through, they'll come through as puns or messages. I mean, they'll give you an example. Um, I, I had a patient. And I was pretty certain that I had um, a relative with her and it was her uncle. We got that far. And then her uncle started showing me tennis. So it, it was Wimbledon. And I saw this man playing tennis. I said, did he play tennis? Did he play? No, didn't play tennis. No, okay. Um, then I suddenly twigged. Was his name Dennis? Yeah, his name was Dennis. Because I because it's very hard to hear. I don't hear what well, some people will hear words, but I don't. With me, I'm quite visual. So how are you going to get across to someone? Because it's it's not like I can hear a voice or see something. I mean, I mean, I think it's a bandwidth problem. And in my case, if the bandwidth is quite low and I'm pretty dense, 
And all they can do is send images. And the images are largely what's in your mind anyway. I was right. about to say it's a frequency issue because if absolutely, you're, Steve, if yeah. you said about vibrations, if, yeah. if you're trying to listen to the radio, like the old FM or AM, yeah, and you 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 radio slightly off the right frequency, yeah. you're not going to hear very well, be it yeah. music, be it speech, be it whatever. What's what's actually going on? So your brain's going to try and make up, yeah. if you like, the missing bits to it. Yeah, it's, I've got um, a I've got another analogy. You, you know the old. Um, um midi files because yes. I, I like computers so you know you can i modern mp files files mp3 files they'll specify a waveform mm. so you don't it, it, it'll play the music for you. you don't need to have a synthesizer or anything but the old mp3 uh, the old midi files basically were were basically notes like the old player piano thing mm. play this note on that on that you know and so basically you had to have an instrument plugged into your computer interesting enough the old-fashioned spiritualists call the mediums the instrument. Yeah. So I think it's like they can only use the notes that are in your head when the ba- – because if you think about the size of a MIDI file, it's quite – it's not very big. The size of a uh, a Windows WAV file or an MP3 file is a lot, a lot bigger than the MIDI file. Mm. So I think when the frequencies – when your bandwidth is very low, then they can only send you a MIDI file. They can only point to things in – that, that you, in your head when it when you when you'll get a better connection a broadband connection then you can actually begin to see things more easily hear things and sometimes even see them fully which i had one couple of occasions Does that makes sense yeah, yeah i think it does um so i would take from that that if you're not feeling great on a certain day let's say you've got a headache or you're tired yeah. you've had a long drive yeah. that that's going to have an effect on what comes through yeah, but not necessarily as um, okay. it can some it can be straight because you've got to understand that there's often internal resistance. So there's the self-critical element, right, which is always there. The critical sensor and that was no, it can't be that, can't be that. Don't. Sometimes when you're tired, actually, you just think, oh, sorry, I'll just get, and then it just flows. And, and what I've noticed also sometimes when I'm if I'm stressed or happy, is I'm better at this. Mm. If I'm low or depressed, so depressed, if my mood's depressed, I don't get anything. But if I'm stressed, like or anxious, then I can be then it can be really ramped up. And I've come to the conclusion it's to do because anxiety is just energy, isn't it? It's nervous energy. It's a lot of energy, as is happiness. Um and I also think that sometimes anxiety, you're sending out a distress signal and you're opening up. So I, I don't I don't know if you've heard, you have you ever watched Stranger Things? And heard about the CIA, the Montauk project. I did watch a few episodes, and uh, I, okay. I probably upset a lot of people because I didn't watch all of it. You didn't but. like it, okay? Yeah, but but there's all there's been this talk about that the CIA did horrible experiments on children Montauk, to traumatize yeah. them, because the idea was is that traumatized kids then actually become more psychic. Yeah, and I, I was thinking, well, how how would that happen? And I think it's because when you it, basically you open up when you're you know you're anxious, there's an internal distress signal, and you just open up, help. You know, send out distress signal. You're opening up to the environment. Um, maybe they even knock holes in your aura. I don't know, but I mean, obviously. So, so when there are high energy states, it's easier. When you're depressed, it's hard. But something when you're just tired, but but relaxed, mm. that you can be pretty good. So I, I sometimes I've gone to sort of, um, development circles and thought oh, it's going to be a crap evening, and I've pulled out the most amazing stuff. You think, oh God, where did that come from? How strange! I, I, you know, I, yeah. I guess that when I was thinking about it, and I try to do creative work, 
Um, it obviously works on a different plane entirely. If I'm tired, I can't do podcasts. I can't think about doing podcasts. I'm, but equally, you know, this is a this is a phenomena that is not fully understood you, you have a framework around it which appears to work but as mm. you say it could be wrong it's like a it's a theoretical uh, mm. construct well it's not just the medium it's the medium i mean spiritually say it's not just the medium right it's the medium and their team and the way i look at it is like i have a team of receptionists and helpers at the surgery I've got a, an ethereal team. You have one guide who gives you energy, who will, who will adjust the vibrations. Another guide will 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 keep the, the spirits in line. And, uh, you know, it's almost like you know you've got a receptionist there and you've got them queuing up. So your spirit guide so is curating who comes through to you, almost. Yeah, that's the idea. And this is where we get into Angelina Jolie. Do you want to hear the story about Angelina Jolie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah okay. Right. <laughs> so, so. I'm, st I'm in my surgery one day and I'm aware of this tall figure behind me because I'm into this, right? I'm really into this. Weird stuff's happening. doesn't happen so much now because when you first get into all this, you open up, you become what's called a space cadet. You, start, you, start, you get overexcited, you lose touch with planet Earth. We all go through the space cadet phase. I was in a space cadet phase. I'm at work and I felt this guy behind me, tall guy, African, obviously. I could just sense it. And I said, who are you? He said, I'm your African guide. I thought, that's great, because Derek Akora's got an African guide. I called Sam, I have one of them, that's great. Wow. I'm getting an African guide now. Yeah. So um, I said, well, what's your name? He said, call me Koza. So I was in front of my computer. I typed in Koza, K-O-S-A, into the computer. We've got X-H-O-S-A, which is a Koza. It's pronounced with a click, Koza, mm. which is a tribe. So Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela were members of the Koza tribe. So I thought, okay, is that your name or your tribal name? He said, just call me Koza, it's fine. Okay. So, um, and so he, he kept on introducing himself to me. And I'm thinking, look, I don't believe in guys because, you know, I, it, I was, it's very, it's very hard to think of guides, you know, especially to think your guides are hanging around. Like, well, can they watch you when you're going to the toilet? I mean, who, <laughs> who want to hang around me anyway? It's boring. I mean, I get bored with the stuff I do half the time. So anyway, so I was really wrestling with this concept of guides. So he'd already, um, he was, I was driving to work one day and I had to get, um, a, a print cartridge and I had to go into PC world. And in those days, PC world was yeah, really long queue. And I thought, Oh God, if I go into PC world, I'll, I'll be late for surgery. And I heard him say, don't worry. I'm going to PC world. I thought, okay, I'll test you. Cause you mean, you're meant to test your guides. So I thought, okay, cause I'll test you going to PC world, park the car, go in there. It's empty. Not only that, the woman at the till is my patient. And the cartridge I want is right by the till. I said, I have one of them. She said, okay, doc, 10% discount. I'll give you all my staff discount. Back in no time. And he's chuckling. But where Angelini Jolie comes into this, sorry, because so I'm I'm at home and I'm sitting there getting into a bit of a stew because, you know, I here I am thinking long and hard, what are these spirit guides? How can they fit? How can this be real? I'm hearing voices in my head, sort of. And I'm a doctor and how do I explain it? And going in these various thought loops, because it was very, I mean, really, it was trying to get my head around this. I mean, I'm comfortable with it now, but I wasn't comfortable in those days. And I thought, I've got to stop this. The kids have gone to bed. Puma's gone to bed. My son, Paul, had recorded Lara Croft and the Cradle of Life. And it was in the video, it's a videotape. It's sat on top of the videotape machine for about nine months. He recorded it before I actually got into, into my development circle. Right. So um, I put it in. And I thought, I'll watch it. Quite fancy Angelina Jolie. And it's a kid's film. 
Um, so I'm watching it and and I'm thinking, oh, this feels a bit silly really, isn't it? And I, th- I start thinking, who is this guy, Cozen? Is he real? And as I'm thinking that, Angelina Jolie on the screen as Lara Croft picks up a phone and says, tell Koza to meet me north of the village of his village. We're <laughs> off to Kilimanjaro. I thought, what? Freeze frame. I've got, hang on, I'm getting messages on this. I've now become schizophrenic because my television's giving me messages. Rewind, play it back. She actually bloody said it. I thought, right, now you've got me. The next <laughs> half of the film is her, her guide, Koza, leading her across the plains of Kilimanjaro, fighting off spirits. And I think, the next day, that was on a Wednesday. So next Thursday, it was the, the circle. So I go in, into my group and say, what happened? How could that be? And he said, oh, it's your guys. He said, you know, it's there. But I said, they can do that. I said, but how? They're not gods. I mean, and then you had to have the director who made the who made the film. Paul had to, re- my son Paul had to record it. She had to say the words. That was done before I was there. And then I had to watch it at the right time. How does that work? They said, oh, well, they can do that. That is bizarre. Yeah, yeah, totally bizarre. I and mean, things like that was happening all the time. Uh, Shall I tell you how, about Nestor? Can I tell you something Please, about Nestor? Yeah. My other guy. So we're, one day we're we're meditating at, um, at there's another medium called uh, Keith Miller. And Keith was one of these spiritualists who's absolutely, there's one way of doing it, right? So we're, 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 we're going to meet our monk. Everyone's got a monk. So we're in our circle. You're going to meet your monk. And then one of the girls said, uh, Keith, um, I haven't got a monk. Can I have a can I have a nun? No, you can't have a nun. You've got to have a monk. Oh, all right, okay. Anyway, so we're, we're meditating. And I'd actually already met this monk in a previous meditation. So we're meditating, and I find myself on this bench under a cedar tree. And there's this guy who looks presents like the Reverend Lionel Fanthorpe from, from Love him. <laughs> that, that sort of avuncular <laughs> face. Yeah. But wearing these monk robes. And he, he says, Hello, little brother. I said, Well, he couldn't be little brother. I said, Well, you we were Nestorian monks in ninth century Syria. I thought, okay, fine. And you were a fussy little monk and you did all the admin of the monastery. And that's why you're into computers and office equipment in this life. I said, I said what? He said, yeah, you were born into this life because you really wanted to explore computers and office equipment. And I, and you always used to like office catalogs. I love them. Still do. I flick through. I thought, really? Is that really a reason to become reincarnated? Because office equipment thing. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, so 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 anyway, so so Nestor. So how did Nestor? So because guys are meant to prove themselves. So how did Nestor prove himself? So as I was having this dialogue, so I mean, I'm in I'm in Enfield Public Library. No, hang on, I've got to tell you this story. Let me, when I was at school, remember I said I used to work as a librarian in the school yeah. to get out of doing right. So I was about twelve, and there was a sixth former called. Um, Lyndon Lewington, and he used to twist my ear and call me idiot child, and he was very, very really impressed me. So Lyndon left medical. Uh, he left. Um, he left the school, and I hadn't seen him for years. And then um, one day, I'm at the local library in Bushell Park, and I saw this guy, and I said to um, sorry, sorry. So talking. So I bumped into Lyndon because when I was a sixth former, I was choosing to go to Notting to medical school. I worked as a librarian at Wood Green Library and I was transferred for one day to a different library and bumped into Lyndon Lewington. He's just finished his degree, um, which was in neuroscience, and he was interested in what I was doing. I said, well, I'm going to go to medical school. I, and I hadn't chosen Notting. I'd chosen Manchester for my first choice and Cardiff for my second. And he took me home in his car. And as I got out of the car, I said, Ian, you should look at the Nottingham perspectives. It's really good. 
Um, and I remember him leaning out of it, as I got out of the car, leaning for city and make sure you look at Nottingham perspective. It's really good. So I did. And I went to Nottingham and I met my wife, changed my life. And, and that, that was just for one day. He'd been transferred to that library just for one day. So I just met him on that day. And then some years later, I've got my kids. I've got my kids and my wife in tow. We're at a local library. And there's another, there's another guy, rather portly guy with gray hair, with a younger wife and two kids. And I said to my wife, Puna, I said, that guy's Lyndon Newington. She said, who's he? I said, well, he's the guy who told me to go to Nottingham. And basically, you know, because I went to Nottingham, he actually brought us together in this strange way. So I went up to him. I said, are you Lyndon Newington? He said, he, he jumped back. I've got this habit of going up to people and sort of challenging them. He said, yeah. I said, I'm Ian Rubenstein. You used to twist my ear and call, call me idiot child. You told me to go to Nottingham Medical School. I'm now a doctor. Here's my wife and children. Thank you. He went white and said, oh, my God. He said, Ian, after I told you to go to medical school, I went to medical school. I'm now a, a, a cardiologist at Hammersmith. And this is my wife. It turned out that his wife was a nurse uh -huh. who works at the health center next to my wife's. We just looked at each other. And at which point the librarian said, can you keep the noise down? I've never heard anything so stupid in all my yes. life. Could you get a room, please? <laughs> right. So, so where am I going with? Because Nesta hasn't come into this. Okay. So I bear that in mind. So Lyndon keeps on popping, popping into my life and we've got libraries. So I'm, I'm thinking about Nestor, my guide, and I'm choosing some books in Enfield Library, and I want to get some sunglasses from Millets. And I heard this voice behind me in my head saying, Ian, put the books down, go into Millets, get your sunglasses, you've got a meeting. And I'm saying to this, who are you? I'm Nestor. No, you're not, you're me. No, just trust me. Do I, I thought, okay, I'll test you. So I put the books down, left the library, went to Millets, got my sunglasses, and I said, what do I do now? He said, go into Boots. So I go, going to Boots and Enfield, I thought, what I'm doing there, here. And as I literally in front of the door, there's Lyndon Lewington and his wife. And I said, Lyndon, he says, Ian. I said, Lyndon, what are you doing here? He said, I've come to get some, some medicines. <laughs> I said, he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I came in to meet you. My spirit guide Nestor told me that you'd be in here. And, and his wife looked shocked. Of course. She looked at him and I realized I'm making a complete ass of myself. I said, <laughs> Nice to meet you, Lyndon. I just spun around on my heels and went. <laughs> actually, funnily enough, I met him at a party many years later. It turned out that he was actually quite interested in this. And he, he actually, um, uh, he, he, you know, he wasn't averse to it. But I thought I'd made a complete fool of myself. And I heard this voice in my head laughing. So that's how Nestor and Coes approved themselves. And I guess that's pretty good proof, really. I'm still not sure. It might just be me, but I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It sounds pretty convincing. I know. It's me, weird, I isn't it? I know. I, know. I take a lot of convincing. Any, anyway, so when when these guys don't speak to me when I'm doing mediumship, it's not like that. In fact, no. most mediums, yeah, so mediums on the whole will say they, they may not even know their guides. They're like in the background adjusting things. And I don't really call on them. I mean, you ask your guys to come forward, you invite them, but I'm not very much aware of their presence. So what it is more like you're feeling something in your chest, or mm. throat or your head, like a feeling and you get a feeling. So with me, what happens is I'll get this feeling and then I'll get an image in my mind and it'll start glowing brighter and brighter. Just an image, like imagination. Then I'll, get a feeling that it has to be for someone, either an individual or someone in that area. And I'll give that image out. And if the person says, yeah, that means something to me, that creates a link. Yeah. Once that they can take that, then it flows. If they say, no, they can't take it, then you really are stumped. And that's 
because I'm, you know, I'm not a professional medium. I mean, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm still, after 20 years, I'm still training. I mean, a good medium will, will then, you know, really plug away. I'm learning how to do that now. Because um, I don't go out on platform much and do demonstrate. I have done a few lately. I, I want to develop that. Um, but because it's different when you're in one-to-one. When I'm with a patient, um, you know, on one-to-one, then you know, you know, you're with them and you get this unfocused attention, which is what I do when I'm with patients often when I'm listening to them. That makes a and lot you get of sense s- to me. It's, it's like what you would be doing if you were doing psychotherapy, that unfocused yeah. attention. So when and then you feel stuff coming in the back of your mind. When you're with a client doing psychotherapy, there is, mm. um, and I very much believe in this about spatialization in the rooms. That there's a yeah. the the way that a room is used has, and I, I believe that a room has an energy to it. You know, mm. n- nothing weird or out of the out of the normal. It's just you, you know when you walk into a room and you think, oh, this is this is comfortable, yeah. or there's another room that isn't. Well, a good counselling room will have a level of comfort to it so that a client Mm. can open up and talk about what's ailing Mm. them. Um, But I very much believe that when I'm with a patient, um, there is a energy in the room that's playing out in between two people Mm. kind of in the air. And I'm a visual thinker too. And I I, I see, I kind of see what's going on. Um, and that's how I think. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. So I guess the question that I have for you is that does this only work when you're in the presence of the person that you want to pass a message to or being online would still be okay? Sometimes better online. I mean, when the pandemic came, so I was seeing this patient, um, uh, was giving her bereavement counseling. She'd had bereavement counseling, but it hadn't worked. Her mum and dad had died in quick succession and she was really down and mm. I was seeing her and I was actually, she started giving me messages. I said, you know, um, and she found it really helpful. And then the pandemic hit and I was sent home, didn't go to surgery for four months because, you know, I was in those, at that time we thought, you know, men in their sixties were at risk. Okay, and yeah. My colleague, Anthony, we worked from home and um, she, we did a phone conversation or she emailed me. And um, she said, it's a shame that we can't can't do mediumship because, um, you know, you're at home. And I said, actually, my 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 development circles now online and it's surprisingly good. Um, why don't we do it over Zoom? I had a Zoom account, I sent her the link and it was amazing. I've got to tell you this one. It was even better because so um, they, they, the miss actually brought us both to tears. So her mum had died and she was going through her mum's things. Mm. And I I. I, I made the link with her. I can really, I mean, when it comes to this particular p- p- patient, I mean, I saw her recently. I can always pull good stuff for her. I saw this br- handbag in my head. I said, has your mum got a handbag? She said, well, yeah, mum had a handbag. I said, um, I'm seeing this handbag. And she said, well, I'm going through her things. I'm sure I've got a handbag. I said, okay. I said, I don't know what that's about. So I put it to one side. And I said, is there such a thing as a charm necklace? Because I saw this, like a charm bracelet, but a long one. It was thick. I'd never heard of it. She said, yeah. I said, is there? She said, yeah, mum had one. I said, well, I'd, I'd never heard of it. I said, can you get it? She, I said, yeah. I said, your mum wants to look at you to look at something. So she got it out. So this is where the Zoom happened, because she actually was at home. So she went into the other room, got this charm necklace, and that's, I didn't even know these things existed. I said, look at, she, your mum wants you to look at, one of the things that's on it, the charms. 
one of the charms was a little silver handbag. So I said, I think she wants you to look at the handbag. Then I saw the handbag. I said, I think, does the handbag open? She said, yeah, it's got a clasp. I said, I think your mum wants you to open it. So she did. And inside was a little silver letter. And on it, it said, I love you. Oh, wow. And, and we both burst into tears. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. What a moment. Oh, really? Uh, that, that was absolutely amazing. That was fantastic. And that wouldn't have happened if I'd have been in the surgery because it was done over Zoom. Yeah. Um, interesting enough, I saw her recently, and she, and she said it's been a couple of years since you know, since she said, see what you can pull up. I said, well, I, I can't do it to order. Actually, with her, I can. So I said, okay, I saw her in the surgery. And I said, what is it with all these drafts? I've seen these, these funny drafts, these odd draft creatures, like toys or something. And she started laughing. She wanted to get something from, from her dad and her mum. I, I said, because she, she's an artist. And her dad was an artist. She said, there's an artist who paints crazy drafts, like with their necks in funny positions, in funny positions. She said, my dad and I, we used to trade these postcards. I used to send him draft postcards of this artist. He used to send them back to me. And, and she actually sent me an email afterwards of the of this these old paintings. I didn't know this guy existed. But in the same consultation, after I said, I said, I've got your mum here now. And she's going on about Beatles. I said, is it the band, the Beatles, or is it about Beatles? And she started laughing again. She said, mum and I used to play a game called Beetle. It's a board game, which mm. I'd never heard of. I don't know if you've heard of it. I'd never oh, heard yeah, of I it. I personally haven't, no. I, I haven't. Yeah. Anyway, she went home. She sent me an email and photographed. You know, sent me a picture of it. So, I mean, I don't know where that came from. It's amazing. So many she, uh, but it, threads and also there's a lot of, what to people would appear to be coincidences happening, but yeah, th but yeah. it always feels like there's more to it than coincidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, that's and that, I mean that's how do I? I mean, uh, I don't see so many patients now because I'm semi-retired, yeah. so I don't. Um, so what I'm trying to do now is more develop my mediumship out more with doing it, you know, up on platform. So I'm, ah. um, yeah, so I'm doing that. I've done a couple of fledgling days which was all right but it's very very stressful i mean i used to think mediums were credulous people you know they believe anything not a word of it they are harsh they i mean it's so much one-upmanship i mean you know the one thing i learned is is that um a lot of the people in the um congregation the mediums themselves and they'll be oh no that's not good you know there's a lot you know oh no no i don't like that no you didn't say that properly no you've got to do better than that so you, you, they're really harsh judges. So it's mm. not. It's not like oh yes, we believe everything. No, not like that at all. It, you know, it's, it's hard edged. You know, and I say you're only as good as the last message you gave. So it's it's quite um, it's quite stressful. But um, uh, I think I gave a message from a dog recently. <laughs> well, actually, one of the questions I had yeah. written down actually is about yeah, do yeah. pets and animals right. come through? But well, yeah, to do. me, I'm not a particularly animal. Yeah, so the very first fledgling day I did was at Vestry Road many years ago and um, I was standing up and I saw this could almost see it like a like a heat haze at the back of the mm. church behind some people and it was bounding around like a like an excited dog so I just called over and said have you lost a dog recently in spirit I said yeah I said I think he's behind you and I could describe this what big dog that was quite excited to get through and said, yeah thank you but the last one I was at was um, I saw this 
woman over to the left. So I was standing up and she was to my right and I was drawn to her. And I had this image of Scottish hills and castles and a man walking with two dogs. Yeah. And I said, are you, you anything to be the King Charles or Prince Charles? Because it was that sort of thing. I said, no, no, really, it wasn't. It was the dogs. I said, hang on a minute. I said, these are dogs and they want to go walkies. I said, have you lost a dog recently? She said, yeah, I lost a couple of dogs in uh, a few months ago. I said, are you into dogs? She said, yeah, I'm a dog walker. I said, well, I think <laughs> I've got, got your dogs here. And she asked me how they're doing. I said, they're rough. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. Okay, Ian, before we move on to other things that are not mediumship related, mm. um, I guess one question that I had for you was really, you appear to have had this in you throughout your life. So you, you had, so, yeah. you had yeah. experiences when you were young, and then it, it seems to have snowballed yeah. as you've got older. Do, yeah, do you yeah. think that everybody has it in them, or is yeah. it a certain few? I'm not special. I think we all can do it. Um, I think everybody can kick a football, but not many people can be David Beckham. I'm no David Beckham when it comes to mediumship. Mm. And I think like anything, you can develop it if you really do it. I absolutely feel that I was led along the path. I think I was helped by whoever. Um, uh, but I think we can all do it. I can't believe, I mean, I, I, people say you're born, you can't develop. I don't, I don't believe it. I think we've all, we've all got the same equipment. We can all do it. Mm -hmm. We're not all predisposed to, I mean, I'm, I, I will never make a good piano player or, and I'm a, or football. I'm not in, interested in football. So I'm never going to be a footballer. Some people aren't going to be meaningless. They're not interested. I'm, I think it's surprising what you can, what you could do if you wanted to. I can't even think it's 99% perspiration one percent inspiration inspiration but i do feel that it was a journey I mean, when i tell the story i mean because you, life's humdrum for me you know you, you you get up you go to the gym you know you go got your family everything when i tell the story this is realize how bloody weird it was it was very exciting yeah i really felt i was led a longer path and then not even that um in 2013 i applied for a, a post and that was nestor i actually heard him behind me I, i've never I, I I wanted I was interested in computer programming. Yes. In fact, if I was writing computer program when all this happened, and I actually think it was because I was concentrating so much on computers that my logical mind was preoccupied, and this other stuff sneaked behind mm. because it was you know nine years, and I thought I was going to be the next Bill Gates, but it never happened. Because I've got no business head at all. I'm not interested in, in business really. And I looked up from my computer screen, and I've gone psychic, you know. Um, but Anyway, so but but one of the things was um, um, GPs have to fill out a lot of forms, and they drive you mad. I had this idea for standardising computer forms, and it was in my head. And um, I noticed there was a I'm a fellow of the Royal College of of um, General Practitioners, an advert in 2013. It was called the Sowby Fellowship. Basically, it was um, this guy had put money forward to. Um, to enable GPs to sort of develop things. And I wanted to develop computer software that were within forms. And I was, and I heard this Nestle saying, you should apply for it. I thought, I don't want to, no, apply for it. So I applied for it, was interviewed and I got it. Mm -hmm. And so I then had, I then dropped a day at work to spend time working on this, these system of forms, which eventually was used to refer 
all the patients in London are for suspected cancer. Right? They were the two-week wait forms, they called, and they were my forms. Oh. Um, and that was part of it. And the other thing was, is I, my book's dedicated my, to my cousin Frances, who died of breast cancer. Mm. Um, she's in my book. And I just think there's this theme of that as well. Um, and, and I was then met lots of people in London, professors and people, who I would never normally meet. And and at the time I was promoting my book and I was talking about it. And, and, and you know, a lot of them were interested in it, to my surprise. Remember one professor, she came up to me at an office do, tell me about your book in, tell me about your experiences. I suddenly realised that a lot of doctors were interested in this and, and they wouldn't talk about it. But I, me being me, I would tell everybody. I actually think that was my, my job. And it gave permission for others to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, sort of uh, the dam starting to burst yeah, type of thing. Yeah. We'd be remiss if we don't mention your book before we move on to something that's oh, yeah. non-mediumship. Okay. So yeah. it's Consulting Spirit, A Doctor's Experience with Practical Mediumship. Um, yeah. It's available in hardback, paperback, and Kindle. It's uh, published through Anomalist Books, and it's on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, it's... It's it's it, it's my one book. <laughs> I, I, you know, every piece says you should write another one. But it, to be honest, that book was written. It was my. I actually kept notes at the time. I was so confused um, by what was going on. I actually kept notes, and those notes then became my book. Maybe I will write another book, but it might not be. Um, it might not be more of the same. It might be more about the philosophy of it. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Know. But I mean, life's life's difficult. I mean, there's so much going on. Well, the, but, um, and, and I get a real sense of that. I listened in the lead up to the interview today. I listened to the yeah. one that you did with Howard Hughes, and that was eleven years ago. Mm. I was his hundred. That was I was. It was his hundredth episode. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. That's right, yeah. And yeah. one of the things that Howard says to you is about your boundless energy. I think I think yeah. he said, and that really yeah. doesn't seem to have changed. You you seem just as sparky today as you did then. Yeah, but I'm 68 soon, so uh, <laughs> things hurt a bit more. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, yeah, no, I, I do get very enthusiastic over this. I mean, yeah, I do get enthusiastic over things. Well, I mean, I, since the UAP thing. Well, yeah, <laughs> we're going to come to that in a minute. There, yeah, there is one I thing that I'm. Oh, go There's one thing I'm dying to ask you about. And yeah. It's kind of, it would be uh, very naughty of me that for a guy that works in Enfield, um, yeah. and. I'm guessing that you were living in the area at the time of the Enfield poltergeist. No, I wasn't. No, I was in Nottingham. No, right. no. So oh, that's a shame. That's, I was in Nottingham, but I mean, I, I, my practice is half a mile from the house in Green Street. Yeah. I have met everybody involved in that, apart from the girls and the mum. Haven't met okay. them, but I've met all the neighbours. Roy, who lived across, so my patient Roy, there's a used, used to be a used cooker shop across the road from me. And he actually witnessed the poltergeist. He said he went into the house once, sat down on a settee. Um, the mother gave him a cup of salt, a cup of tea on a saucer. He said, Doc, he said, the thing lifted up in the air. It was as if someone was walking across the room and smashed it into the, into the wall. He said, you've never seen anyone move, <laughs> run out as fast as, as me. Uh, but I've, I've met, so I've met him. Um, I think I mentioned. I look actually. I look after the grandson of the Enfield poltergeist. Okay, he's a lovely guy. Yeah. Um, and I, well, I've met loads of people. Uh, people who witnessed it or saw it or were involved in it peripherally. Mm. 
And I was very lucky that um, my wife worked with a GP in Muswell Hill who looked after Maurice Gross, who was oh, the investigator. Oh, wow. And he, met, okay. and he met me in the gym one day. I said, Ian, would you like to meet Maurice? Because you're into this yes, sort of please. thing. Yes, please. Yeah. And I said, yeah. So Maurice phoned me. Um, he gave me his number and I phoned up Maurice. And he said, well, come round. And Maurice played me the tapes. I went, saw his house. And um, I remember as I listened to it, it was really, I spent about an hour and a half with him, two yeah. hours. And um, I met his wife, Betty. And I remember he was only a little guy with a handlebar massage. And I remember as I shook hands, say goodbye, he looked at me and said, Ian, I am absolutely convinced that we survived death. Wow. Okay, at, at the time, I didn't tell him what was happening to me, but I told him about Felicity's face. And he said, I think you and your sister are undeveloped mediums. Then I said, well, actually, Maurice, I have to tell you, I'm training as a I medium. I'm a developing said, well, medium, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And then um, I gave a talk at the SPR. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, once my book was there, and I met Guy Playfair. Yeah. And um, there, and then Guy actually did the blurb for my book. He oh, was lovely. Brilliant. Guy. Yeah. So I met them both. Yeah. I mean, I both, both of those, both. both Morris and Guy have been completely whitewashed out of the, um, the Conjuring 2. Which is the, oh, I mean that was rubbish. Yeah. I mean that was hilarious. I mean the one. I mean first of all, I mean it was. We, I, I'm a member of the Ghost Club, and um, um, Alan Murdy. I don't know if you know Alan, but he he runs it. I was there, and he, they 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 gave a the Conjuring, um, the the Enfield Poltergeist one. And first of all, you know when there's the basement that floods, right? You know there's yeah. a flood in the bay. Well, there aren't any. We don't have basements <laughs> no. like that in this no. country. They're in America. No. And then the false teeth. That bite them in the butt. I mean, that was hilarious. We were wetting ourselves. We were we were falling out. We had a private sitting in a pub in London, and we were all absolutely killing ourselves. We laughed. That was a load of rubbish. That really that really was. But the but the case was real. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. What a fantastic absolutely. experience for you to meet all yeah. of these people. I think they said that the family weren't really capable of actually. You know, they they get they were they're accused of um, putting all this on and. It was all tricks and everything, but I think bar one case where the girls took one of the tape recorders mm. and they didn't, they forgot to turn it off so you could hear them in the background. They were playing tricks on on Morris, mm. but they were they were not capable of a family to actually have done all this because I mean, well, police were there. Police saw yeah, they was, did what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the um, chairs moving across and, and, yeah. and stuff like that. It's, and then the the, the, the I, I actually I looked after the family of the crossing lady who saw the levitation oh, yes. from the window. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Um, yeah, I mean, I've looked. I mean, they've all been my. I mean, it's literally in my area. I mean, it's so apt that I should be, you know, the mediumistic doctor in the Enfield Poltergeist. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Yeah. But but let me tell you this story. So um, so the grandson of the Poltergeist, he's my patient. So we're, we're in the staff room and we've got a temp and she's saying, this is just before the film was made. She said, what's all this about the Enfield Poltergeist? So they all looked at me. I said, haven't you heard about the Enfield Poltergeist? All, so I told her the story. Anyway, I had to do a visit, um, a home visit. And I took a home visit that was at the north end of Enfield because there was a shop called Direct Boot and Shoe and they do printed T-shirts. At the time, I was a member of a ghost club because my patient, Mark, he ran a ghost club. And in order to do the ghost club, you go out on site, you have to wear this, this T-shirt so the police know who you are. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in, yeah. in this sort of uniform. So I thought, okay, I'll go and do this visit and I'll, um, I'll, I'll then I'll go and see this patient. But it took a bit longer to do this visit because they actually, they, they actually, 
weave the print. It's like a not printed. It's actually woven, mm. sort of like a me- mechanical weave, computer control weaving. Anyway, it took an hour. So I knock on the patient's door. I say, I'm really sorry I'm late. Um, he said, I, I, I said, I had to get my, my T-shirt printed. I, I, he said, what's the T-shirt for? I said, I'm a member of a ghost club. And the guy said, oh, you should speak to my dad. He's into that sort of thing. I said, oh, really? So I saw this patient, uh, treated him, gave him a, a sick note, and um, went downstairs to see his dad. And I said, um, he tells me that your son told me you're into this. He said, yeah, I'm the son of the Enfield poltergeist. I said, what? Bearing in mind, I was just talking about it. Yeah. I'd gone to get a T-shirt for Ghosts Club, and now I was seeing the son of the Enfield. I mean, it's weird. And I said, I was just talking about this. I said, my um, one of the staff, she's interested in it. She said, I, um, so he came down to pick up something from a patient. And when he came down, I introduced him to the temp who asked about the Enfield Poltergeist. I mean, it's the weird stuff that happens. It's part of the thread. Yeah, the Enfield Paranormal Centre of North of London. You see, <laughs> but the North London North London is quite odd because I mean, just a few miles down, you've got Highgate, and obviously mm. in the yeah. late sixties and seventies, yeah. you had the Highgate the Highgate Vampire. You've Ooh. got to be a bit odd to live in North London, you know. <laughs> I used to live in East London, and I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, um, all, all the sensible people have left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it would be something that we have to talk about, as we're both very intrigued by what's going on at the moment in the world yeah. of UAPs. Yeah. Um, two words for you, Dave Grush. What, oh, what do you think? My hero. I think he's amazing. I mean, I I've been into this since I was six. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember. There used to be a thing called uh, uh, called Here and Now. It used to be a news program. I remember the Warminster thing was on. Yeah. Oh. And they had that picture of the flying saucer from Warminster. Yeah. I remember going to bed being terrified that the marshals were going to land. Well, but, the, War, the Warminster thing as well. The Warminster thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was that was the time of Warminster. And, and you know, the early 60s, there was a lot of this going around. Um, but I've always been interested in it. I mean, I've always read about it. I followed the whole thing as long as I can remember. And I've always been absolutely convinced that there's something to it. It's just no doubt in my mind. I mean, I I may have my doubt about that I'm a, that spiritualist might not be what it is, but I absolutely believe that whatever it is, there's a reality to this. And I just think it's amazing that it's come out. And I'm hoping that we will, well, I'm pretty certain, I mean, I follow Ross Coulthard and, yeah. um, and the others, you know, need to know and all those. And um, I'm hoping it will come out. Um, but what I find amazing is, it really has been downplayed by the media. The media have been, um, I'm not, I'm not going to be one of these conspiracy theorists who say that they get to the media, although I suspect they might get to, indiv- I think they do. I think they get to individuals within the media and then yeah. and that, that, that plays on, I was kind of, I was having a conversation with somebody on Facebook yesterday about a certain journalist over in the States who is bashing at the moment everything that's going on calling people like Lou Elizondo is oh, shield yeah. I know who you mean I know exactly who yeah, you mean and yeah we won't mention his name no no it's yeah. no need but it, it, it's yeah. I just think okay you you have to be so incredibly tone deaf to yeah. to not realize that there's something very very special going on now mm-hmm. um you know something I I call it a forced disclosure by the media if you like and i.e mm-hmm. a section of the media um you know I think people like Ross Coulthard have done amazing journalism 
which mainstream well he is a mainstream journalist but but other mm-hmm. mainstream journalists have been shown to be incredibly lacking in, in mm-hmm. this field and i think um you know it's going to be it's going to be a bit of a battle to make it properly mainstream now mm. i think it might get there i think it's going to be very interesting next 12 months anyway let's put it that way Word spreading, word spreading. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, I've been going on about it since June the seventh, since he came out. Yeah, and every, you know, it's interesting. You can tell people you're a medium, um, and they, oh, they're very polite. Once you tell people you're into UFOs, they look at you like you're bonkers. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say, let me tell you about Laurie. Okay, yeah. So Laurie is a dentist. He passed away now, um, but but he. Um, he was into the Anunnaki. He believed oh, right, yeah. that he, he was into that. And he bore everybody sick of this. So I, I'm at my uh, one of my spiritualist friends' house, Charles, and his wife, Rita, says, Ian, you sit for dinner. When we're at dinner, you sit next to Laurie because I know you're interested in UFOs. And Laurie, you'll be interested in what Laurie has to say. No one else is. So I said, yeah. So I had a nice conversation with Laurie. And I said to Laurie, after, after you let me get a word in, I said, you know what, Laurie, I think you're right. He said, what? He said, I think you're right. Because you said, I'm interested in UFOs, and I think they're still coming. You looked at me and said, what, you believe in UFOs? Are you mad? <laughs> and he just spent half an hour telling me you believe that the Anunnaki came down here and they enslaved the ancient people yeah. to make their gold. I think I crossed his boggle threshold. It was, it was all right in biblical times. He was okay with that. But how can you believe they're here? Very no similar parallels throughout the whole yeah. of the paranormal spectrum, if you like. People who yeah. um, are big into Bigfoot, for instance, and and then there's others who will say that Bigfoot are seen around the same time as UFOs are seen, and then there's another um, group who will go, "You're well, clearly balmy. You can't yeah. you can't believe that. That's just uh, this is purely a cryptid thing. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know the truth, um, but what I'm not going to do is jump down somebody's neck for having an opinion. And uh, I, I just am very happy at the moment that information is coming through. Yeah. Um, it's clear that journalists like Ross Coulthard, George Knapp, Corbell, etc. They obviously know a lot more than they're prepared to say. Um, and that gives me a sense of comfort, actually. Uh, mm. It might annoy a lot of people because they want to know, right? Yeah. But yeah. for somebody like Ross Coulthard to actually nail his colours to the mast over Dave Grush, it yeah. means he's done his work. It means, and he said so himself, that other people are coming forward and saying, yeah, Dave Grush is the real deal. Um, yeah. And that, to me, is very comforting. And I'm I'm quite happy, actually, to sit back and look at what's happening and think, do you know what? This is a big moment in this world, in this in this particular topic. It's a huge moment. And if it does come to pass that it's true, then it's a gargantuan moment for the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have absolutely no doubt that it's true. I mean, really, I and because I. It all dovetails. If you follow the history and the stories, there's just so much going on. I mean, what I find amazing is some of the wilder claims might be true. What do you consider to be the wilder ones? Oh, the idea. I mean, do you remember Nick Cook wrote the book, The Hunt for Zero Point? I've Uh, not read it. Okay, worth reading. He he went on a... So Nick Cook was a aviation editor of James Defence Weekly. Okay. And in the late 90s, wrote a book called The Hunt for Zero Point. And he'd come across anti-gravity research mm-hmm. or gravity control research. And he he, he just wondered, he said, something weird happened in the 1950s. 
And Michael Strack goes on about this as well. There were lots of magazine articles saying gravity is going to be the next thing. We'll soon have gravity control. And then it just stopped. Nothing. And then it went quiet. And then it was ridiculed. And he just wondered if something had happened in the 1950s and somebody had amassed it. Then you hear about Thomas Townsend Brown and people like that who ended up with the idea of electric gravitics and they, they went silent because they started working for the US government. Then you hear Stephen Greer, who's absolutely certain. I don't know what to make of Stephen Greer, but, but you know, you look at the people who's got his disclosure project and they, you know, they, they're very good witnesses. Yeah. And he's absolutely, he, he says, gravity control, gravity was mastered in October, 1954. Now, if you, if maybe it was, I don't know, and it's been suppressed, but if you just think the right flyer was 1903 mm. and they landed on the moon in 1969, yeah. say that's 65 years. If we really did master gravity in 1954, it's now 69 years. How many years is it since 1954? Yeah. yeah. Year older than, yeah. What, if you can go from nothing to world air travel, air forces, and God knows what else. If you had mastered anti-gravity or gravity control in 1954, what could we have out there? And you think of Gary McKinnon. Yes, yes. And what he found, you know, this weird thing with two geodesic domes in orbit and then a list of non-terrestrial officers with 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 spaceship or well, ships that weren't in the US invent- inventory. Mm-hmm. And then you've got like Daniel Inouye who says there's a secret, um, you know, Space program force. Or- you- Space program and all this stuff. And then Reagan, we can put 300 in in orbit in the 1980s. What the hell's going on? So it may be even more weird than we think. Maybe it all started in 1947. Uh, Well, before that, I mean, David Grush is saying before that, isn't he? He says 1933. I think Magenta, which is what you're referring to, is is perhaps the way that this is going to come out. Because um, a lot of things that happened on sovereign US soil Hmm. will have been um, classified there. So it's going to be very difficult, I suspect, to talk about it openly. But Magenta Hmm. and the alleged crash that happened there, it was in Hmm. Italy. Mussolini was in charge. Hmm. Um, It was then, if this is correct, subsequently um, Pope Pius XII. I mean, it's it's like a Dan Brown novel, isn't it? You've got the Vatican in In fact, it's better than a Dan Brown (laughs) novel. Much better, yeah. You know, if Pope Pius XII has got information or had information that it was then passed over to the Americans in 1944, I think it was. Now, all of that stuff that happened was outside of the classification system, if you like, of the American government. So if there's stuff written down, and I'd have seen a couple of documents to do with Magenta, nothing earth shattering, but you know, the the uh, Vatican archives and all of that, not controlled by America. Um, and I do wonder if that might be where it all starts to come untangled, because there is a reason, I think, that Magenta was mentioned in Congress rather than Roswell. Mm. Um, and I think it's the little chink in the armour where they can start mm. to pick things apart, perhaps. Mm. But the next question is, why now? And um, I mean, I've heard various things. Um, maybe this, I mean, you know, who's it goes on about? I mean, well, well, uh, Stephen Gray goes on about the free energy. They're, yeah. they're actually flying free energy. Now, if you think about it, this is interesting. I'm having a discussion on the, on on uh, on my paranormal discussion group. So let's let's just 
speculate wildly. If you can pull energy, free energy out of the ether, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, zero point field. We know that energy and matter are the same thing. You can create, presumably, maybe they can create matter out of the ether. Right. Okay. I mean, virtual particles, maybe you can de-virtualize them. You know, I mean, that's what happens in black holes. You know, if a, if a virtual particle appears near an event horizon, one goes to the black hole and the other one becomes real. Oh, um, okay. So maybe they can do that. So, you know, these these seamless UFOs, um, no one knew how they'd be how they'd be created but it turns out now we can imagine 3d printing can't yes we? indeed yeah but, it, but they're now talking about metamaterials that are fabricated at the atomic scale maybe they're being maybe you create them like a star trek replicator yes. or maybe mm-hmm. you can maybe if you're really really clever you can do something with space time and that creates like now a, a harmonics or ripples in space time that actually and where the ripples form, atoms just appear. Okay. And do you remember that mysterious visitor that visited Bryce Sable? You know, the one who turned up when they... You've heard the story about Bryce Sable? The I don't think dark I have. Sky, The premier of Dark Skies. Ah, right. At the party. This guy turns up and says... He gives him a little piece of paper and says, the secret of the universe is all to do with frequency, light, and vibration, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It just keeps on coming up. I just wonder if maybe, you know, if we... Free will and got the, you've got these non-human... In, intelligence is a really really clever maybe they know how to how to create stuff out literally out of thin air the reason why i say this this is where i want to get back to mediumship because it's all linked that rubenstein's first law of the paranormal is it always <laughs> end? i've got three laws it always ends with aliens because in other words it's not a silo whichever you get into you'll always end up with aliens so i've got friends in the paranormal discussion group that actually sat at the skull circle the experiment yes circle. okay and they wit now they witnessed the the mini ufo that appeared and they witnessed a lot of the stuff like, like things being dematerialized there one minute and then suddenly it's just ethereal put your hands through it and they explained that that on the other side they were creating an, an energy template that was the real thing and then it would crystallize in our world and i'm just wondering you know I mean, and and they talked about um people from the 10th dimension coming through yeah and they had this alien called blue now actually my friends witnessed this in fact they witnessed um not just that they witnessed lights being spinning around the room uh one one of my friends the light went like an olive sh- light went through her body that side of an olive and came out with a popping noise she felt it fizz through her body my word um yeah um one of them was i think um they went twice one of them was this little boy came up and gave him a hug, but there was only materialized from the, there's nothing from the forehead upwards. They gave him a shock. He said, don't worry, mister, next time I'll bring my, all of myself through. And this, this stuff, so this idea of materialization and apples. So if we, if we de-silo, get out the silo and, and realize that UAP, UFOs, often linked with a lot of mediumistic phenomena. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a commonality there, but it but it does your head in a bit because you think, okay, well, you know, it's the spirit world. Maybe I can get that. We, then where are these people from? And it may be we that we haven't got the correct cosmology. I mean, if you're an ancient Greek, you believe that the Earth was at the center. Mm-hmm. Well, some of you did, and that, or well, medieval days, that you had that the center of the stationary Earth and glass spheres, right? You wouldn't even have a concept of a, of a large universe with galaxies. You just you wouldn't know what to make of it. 
It may be that we haven't got the right concepts. So maybe they're not coming from another planet, maybe coming from another realm. And I'll use the term realm rather than dimension or a parallel universe, because we don't know what these realms are. No. I mean, you're into fairies and Bigfoot, and then and yeah, before you know it, you've opened up the whole it's, can of worms. Yeah, yeah everything. <laughs> onto, you've got full-on ontological shock and you're an ITU. <laughs> As a friend of mine, Forrest Burgess, says, everything's connected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. I think we're going to draw the podcast to a close. I, I think it's been an excellent chat. Any final thoughts from you, Ian, before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, the, 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 in, just, I just want to let you know that once David Grush came out on June the 7th, inside my head is a little cartoon guy running around saying, it's alien, it's alien, it's Yeah. And it's just, I've, I've, I think I've watched, I actually got me onto Twitter. I, I, I avoided Twitter, but I thought I've got to get onto Twitter. Okay. I never understand how it worked. Then they bloody changed the name to X. I'm okay with that. So, <laughs> so a little uh, little Giorgio Sukolos <laughs> running around going, told you so. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I've actually done a meme. I've done a meme. I've got um, uh, Stanton Friedman. Oh, I've yeah. got a picture of Stanton Friedman. I put, I, I, I put, I always said it was aliens and I put at the bottom triple underlined. Yeah, you used to say triple underlined. Yeah. You'd, you'd always say that. It's, so I've got, I've done a It's one thing, thing that saddens me. Yes, Stanton Friedman, Paul Hellyer, um, Art Bell, you know, all of those people in the physical realm, if you like, are not around to see it. And I think that's a crying shame. I'm going to have to have a good look into this magenta stuff because it has passed me by a little bit. Sure. But I've always always thought that 1947, obviously Roswell, and what happened afterwards, and then the microchip, evolution everything like that and i think you're right ian all of a sudden we went from planes that could just about take off and fly to the moon landings in inverted commas because i'm i'm not a moon landing denier i do have friends who are yeah i have friends who are as well yeah but i uh, actually i think i think they landed i'm sorry i think I've, they landed but they didn't yeah. land in a baked bean tin Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, funny enough, we're just going. We, we've got we've got a squirrel in our loft, so we're clearing out the loft. The bloody thing. It's 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 um. It's, I hope it doesn't destroy the house. Anyway, but I found my old um, uh, books from the moon landing. Oh, you remember oh you, brilliant! Uh, one's called Moon Slot, and it's got and it's it was about the lamb. I remember being so excited. I was thirteen when they landed on the moon. I was so excited, and then I remember being hearing about the space shuttle, and it all was stopped. You know. Mm. Oh. We're meant to be on Mars by now, you know, but I mean, what I really hope, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think Elon Musk is a great engineer. I think I'm not so sure I like what he's done to Twitter, but um, I'm hoping that by the time he Starship uh, launches off, we'll be flying past him in our own UFO saying, hello. Must admit, I, look, looking at the way that Starship is meant to come back to land, I don't yeah. think I would ever want to go on it. Yeah. Um, that whole flipping around thing does not yeah. sit comfortably with me at all. Yeah. Okay. Um, Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you along. Absolutely. Um, oh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've really right? enjoyed it. So uh, um, I'm very grateful to you. Thank you very much for making the time for us. Oh, it's so nice to be able to speak to someone who who believes that the UFO thing is important because I, I, <laughs> I went out for a meal with my friend Steve the other day and I, I was going on about it. He said, Ian, I'm not interested in it. I said, how can you not be interested in it? He said, I'm just not interested in it. 
I, I just, you know, the two biggest questions, what happens when we die? And is there alien life, you know? Arthur C. Arthur C. Clarke used to say, didn't he, that the, yeah. the scare, the, 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 there are two things. It's either we are the only life in the universe or there is intelligent life. Mm-hmm. Now, am I paraphrasing him? But didn't he say, no, you know, both, he, both he, are equally scary. He, 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 both are equally scary, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, Enrico Fermi, he, you know, the Fermi paradox, he asked, where are they? And I was thinking, well, they're, they're here. That's what the mm. UFOs are. Yeah. Oh, is that, you know, anyway, they're here, but they're just hiding. They're very tiny. You know? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I think Douglas Adams said that uh, yeah. there was a, a swarm of uh, war um, spaceships right, yeah. attacked the Earth and then were swallowed up by a small dog. By the small dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, it's a drastic miscalculation of scale. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Dr. Ian Rubenstein, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, then please do help support us by making a small donation. You can find a donate button on the website at anomaly.co.uk and you will find all of our episodes there too. We also have a presence on YouTube and our X handle is at AnomalyCast. We're available on all major podcast services. Just search for Anomaly Paranormal Podcast. Thank you to Xperia for our theme music. You can find more from Xperia on Epidemic Sounds. If you would like to recommend a guest or to be one, get in touch with Paul at anomaly.co.uk. Until next time, we'll be seeing you.